HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruzet.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant. A shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food, food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is a much-lauded Boston-area chef whose accomplishments within the kitchen are mirrored by her achievements outside those walls. Unifying the life inside and life outside is an intense don't-ever-stop attitude that has allowed her to open fast-casual restaurants, Saloniki, after running the award-winning Rialto in Boston for more than 20 years, and also commit to more than seven, I think it's eight years in a row, to riding 200 miles to benefit the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I'm not sure which of all of those accomplishments impresses me more, but they all are impressive. So Jody Adams, very happy to have you here on Speaking Broadly. Well, it's great to be here, Dana. So we actually have a, an uncanny number of things in common. As I was learning more and more about what you've done and you know the, the timing of things, we've We've been on similar, but of course, also very different paths. Um, we both went to Brown University, and we were there at the same time we overlapped for a couple of years. Um, we both ran award-winning businesses for more than 20 years. We both set off on new paths relatively recently. We've both been deeply touched by breast cancer. Uh, and 
And to be fair, there are things where we're not the same. Like, I will never get on a bike for more than, I don't know, 20 miles, even if it is to That's raise money. That's pretty good. 20 grand. miles is so. good. That's good. But it's at two different points. Like, I, that would be there and back. Is that okay? Yeah, like that's, to, yeah of course. Okay, great. It's 20 miles to, either way. You, you have to start it. somewhere, yeah. right? Um, and... Though, you know, I'm obsessed with anything that has to do with food and am always eating. I'm the eating side of the equation and not the cooking side of the equation. So I feel well, like... Well, we need you. Desperately. Right? You need butts and seats. Yes. And uh, mine is in yeah, and many people seats. Who, people who love to eat food. It's, that's an important part of the population. Thank you for validating that, yes. <laughs> that for me. But I wanted to start um, this conversation at a pivotal turning point because I, I wanted to know more about how for you at Rialto where you had run an extraordinary restaurant with a very strong team and the restaurant was beloved how did you decide to make that change well there's never really just one particular thing or moment it was a combination of a number of energies that were moving in one direction. It was the right time for a variety of reasons. Some of them were my choice, some of them weren't my choice. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, uh, I, I could have stayed another couple of years. I would have been happy to. Um, I lost, that, I, and I didn't realize that this was going to happen, I really lost an identity, and I lost a community, and I lost a home. So I went from, you know, being at Rialto day in and day out, having this incredible team, as you said, some of those people had been with me from the beginning. Customers who'd been coming since the beginning, who came once a week, who or celebrated every holiday or every family event there, all of the Harvard community, the Cambridge community, and um, and I had an office and I had an assistant, and I all of a sudden I had none of that, and my world was. Like, whoa, you know, I was really floating. Um, I'm curious about the identity part of it, because um, how do you identify yourself and how did that shift? I mean, understandably, they're the communities that you lost, but there's still you inside. So what did you feel like you lost in not cooking or and probably was managing and cooking? I think it was the conduit for that connection with people. So, I mean, I had trade and I have had partners. I was building another. So know, trade is a restaurant. A restaurant. Yeah. Said without <laughs> all caps, you might not know what that yeah. is. But. So I, yes, it was a five-year-old restaurant that I had with partners in Boston. We were building another restaurant, full-service restaurant Porto, that's now been for two and a half years we've had it. And, and Saloniki, the fast casual that you mentioned, um, we now have three. So there was a lot going on. Um, but what, I, what I've learned two and a half years after that, when now I feel like I'm back to being myself, was that um, that connection to people was really, really important. And it's a connection not from being a you know, well-recognized chef uh, in the public world, on television, through the James Beard Foundation, through Food & Wine. I mean, that's all wonderful. You know, I love that stuff. But... It's really the day-to-day -day connection that I had with my staff and with my customers. And so that was hard to replicate, or it leaves a hole, because the other businesses, you're, you're running, but you're not maybe in the kitchen, is that? I'm, it's, I'm not in the day-to-day -day operations. Mm -hmm. I never intended to be. And, 
there are definitely communities within those restaurants, and I'm a part of them, but not in the same. It's not my, you know, mine. So what was the journey to this point now? I love that you're saying that it feels like you're back to you, but two and a half years is a long time. So what happened in that intervening time? Well, I um, hit a pretty dark place mm-hmm. um, after, and we talked about this before we started um, actually recording this, uh, my sister got very sick in that year that um, I closed Rialto and opened um, Porto and opened the first Saloniki, and, and she was really failing through the spring of 2017, and we lost her in April. And and I had lost Rialto, and, you know, there was just so much transition that um, I found I had to go talk to a therapist. My husband said one day, you know, Jody, when you get to this point, I think you better go see somebody and talk to somebody. So I did, and I knew that I wanted to talk to somebody who had some um, experience with working with people who have a meditation practice. I didn't want to go back and talk about my mother. <laughs> I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but I'm done with you. Yeah. <laughs> Going through that again, the childhood stuff. I didn't want it. I wanted actually techniques and practice that would allow me to live with the reality of this loss and the fact that I was in transition. And she said to me, you know, grief is a real thing. And which I had just kept barreling along. I guess that's the don't stop quality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I And so, grief is something one should stop for. It was was that the message? Yeah. And and you're gonna feel it. It is a real thing that you need to process and pay attention to and give it the respect that it deserves as opposed to, well, I'm just gonna put that aside and keep going because that's I'm good at that. I'm good. At, I can just keep going. I'll just sort of carry it along in a backpack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't right. really need to deal with it. Right. Because you're like, I've carried knives. I've carried, yes, you know, right. You've just carried things. You've carried staffs. You've carried P&Ls. Yeah. I, and I've different. carried crisis after crisis after crisis. Um, and, you know, you just get up and, and keep going. So it forced me to really pay attention to what's important and to... Um, recognizing what were the things that I lost. And one of the things I learned was that I had lost this community. And, you know, you can't minimize that sense. We were just talking earlier about how people like to have, know their names, have their names said, have their names put on things. You know, we want to be recognized. You want to be known. Yeah, and known in the day-to-day, in the day-to-day. So, And were were there, I mean, not to go back to the therapist, but I'm always so curious to hear what they could add to the conversation that's practical because it sounds like that way that's what you went for I mean you weren't you were there to talk but also to understand how to process yes and were there were there practical things that you took away in terms of tools or did you meditate before and then uh continue the meditation practice or uh yes the latter so I were I had a practice it wasn't a very um schooled practice. It was a kind of a, I sat down on a cushion and, and tried not to follow my thoughts, you know. Um, and she gave very practical um, mindfulness, um, insight meditation kind of practice, which is you need to be nice to yourself. Mm-hmm. Learn how to practice, you know, self-compassion. There are a lot of the buzzwords that I think are out there, you know, a lot of the um, 
the focus on mindfulness, it actually works. And being nice to yourself is really important. And telling yourself, yeah, that sucks. That really hurts. You know, it really, it's horrible to lose a sister, you know. Um, and were you, were you and your sister close yeah. from the get-go? There's three sisters. Yes, I have an older sister, um, and she's two years older. And then our younger sister was about four years younger than me. And There's I, also how unfair it is. Yeah. Right? It's just so unfair. Unfair. And my mother, you know, it's, my mother feels like it's unfair. My mother also has cancer, and she's like, why, why are you taking my daughter? You know, mm -hmm. it's just... And your mother's still um, dealing with lung cancer. Yeah, and she's amazing. She's, uh, she keeps going, so... The, the lessons that you learned, I think, are great lessons for being in the kitchen and being in, in life. But the notion of cooking as a meditation, did, did that become part of the practice? Just the everyday cooking? Yeah, and going back to cooking at home, going back to um, dinners at home uh, with my husband. You know, I had that. Had, had you ever had dinner at home? I mean, yeah. I don't, it's really, because so many chefs don't. Now, you have two kids, so were you... Uh, I mean, were you no, home? No, I was not home very much um, when they were small. But we did have a uh, family dinner. And family dinner was, as far as they were concerned, it meant that there were lots of bowls on the table with good things to eat or at least to try. You didn't have to eat the things that you uh -huh. hated, but you had to at least try them. And it wasn't just like one plate of food. It had to have several, you know, bowls on the table. And, and why is that? I kind of love that. And what were in those bowls? Oh, it would be, you know, grains and greens and chicken and, um, you know, yogurt and all kinds of... What, what I learned um, as a mom was that um, kids, it takes them 15 times to wow. get used to something. Uh -huh. <laughs> and It's good you kept trying. I think I give up and I ended up with chicken soup. Just that's my answer. <laughs> well, I think that Customizable that's, a, chicken that's soup. a very understandable route to go, but... I, want, I was really excited about food, I want, and my husband was as well, and we wanted them to keep trying. So we had something that came from my mother called the no thank you helping, which was you had to taste whatever was put in front of you. You didn't have to um, eat everything that was on your plate, but you did have to taste it. Giving them control over how much they put on their plate, you know, gave them ownership in this process. And now um, they're amazing eaters and cooks and... Um, and what is most important, I think, for all of us, and I think um, I was just listening to Dory Greenspan's interview with you as well, and she talked about the table and how important it was bringing people around the table, and that's what has been passed on to them, which is, you just, there's nothing like that. I've, I've spent most of the my food and wine time, which was, you know, a couple of decades when my kids were little, not being home for dinner really during the weekdays, except to be there at the end or, you know, but we spent a lot of time eating on the weekends. And that would be going from restaurant to restaurant or cooking Sunday dinner. And my my daughter would say, we didn't have any, we didn't really have a lot of traditions. And I said, but what about Sunday dinner? <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I think she's carried that with her, which makes me just so happy, even if it's just a single meal that you can commit to, where you know that everyone has to be there and you can't, you can invite friends. Like, I'm happy to triple the amount of food. But I think it's great to have a time when, you know, we're all, we're all together. Yeah, because it's the only thing, you know, eating is one of the few things that you can't do virtually. And 
Um, we know how important it is to actually sit face to face with people and and share something. Why not have it be a meal? Um, you know, obviously get the phones. Out yes, of the, we have out of, a we do. We have a no phone rule, and the only way that it's broken though is that my husband he picks up his phone. We all sort of gasp, and then we realize what he's trying to do is put on the music. And uh, we're like, yeah, okay, yeah. And also, if you need to Google something, you know, for information, sometimes that's okay. But yeah. now we have a ban on that because uh, otherwise we're googling the entire time. Yeah. Uh, what was that word? And what was that place? And um, so. So the answer is, I did not cook a whole lot. Um, my husband cooked. He actually is a very good cook. They always sat down for dinner every night, whether I was there or not, and had a family dinner. And when I was there, I often cooked and, um, of course, broke all the rules. And, you know, they had these you know, um, routines to get them through the <laughs> weekend nights. And if I was home on a Wednesday, it was totally thrown <laughs> off whack. But... But that's okay because you were home. And yeah. That was like an exciting moment. And so you said you had gotten back to cooking. And are you cooking for you and Ken, your husband? Mostly. It, it, and we also have, living with us, we have a chef from Greece who uh, came to take um, the helm at Saloniki Harvard Square, which is our newest uh, Saloniki. And he arrived and didn't have a place to live and we had a third floor and sa I said well, come live with us thinking well it'd be maybe a month or two and he's just found a place to live but he was living with us all summer before we opened Saloniki so you know it was light late and so we were cooking a lot all of us. That sounds like you got a deep dive into Greece just in your own yes. backyard which sounds kind of great. I know that you love to travel and you've traveled since you were a kid. What is your favorite place to travel to? I always say um, it's wherever I have a plane ticket. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, the most recent trip was to Tanzania. It's the third trip to Tanzania that my husband and I have done with um, Thompson Safaris. It's a safari company and they invited me to lead culinary safaris, which means that I cook with the chefs in the camps. We do not cook the wild animals. Good. People always ask. No, we're not eating those wild, wild animals. But I cook with them in the camps. And the camps are, they're beautiful camps, but there's no running water and there's no electricity. And so they work with charcoal and it's, it's, it's rustic and it's really fun and, and such a wonderful, exciting challenge to figure out what you can do with the equipment at hand. And they're amazing. One of the um, pastry chefs, one of the chefs makes shoe pastry swans. You know that um, actually Gabriel Hamilton in the New York Times a few weeks ago did a piece on shoe pastry swans and with uh, creme anglaise and uh, pastry cream inside and, and they're beautiful and he makes them in an oven that's a charcoal oven without a thermometer and wow yeah that must taste i mean the charcoal must impart a really different flavor to that shoe pastry yeah, a little bit toasty and smoky toasty. and yeah and then we end up at um gibbs farm which is a coffee farm and all of the people on the trip pick vegetables milk the cows collect the eggs and i give them recipes and they go at it and you know they're all, all very nervous that you know, I'm not going to do this right. Some people, you know, have to follow every detail. Other people look at the recipe and say, I know how to do it, and they ignore my recipe. Um, but it always works out. 
it always works out. You know, cooking is one of those things that if you let people just dive deep into what they know and their intuition um, and let them f- make the mistakes and recover from them, they produce beautiful food. What happens if they have no intuition? If they have no, no intuition, then they follow the recipe. <laughs> and like an they, yeah, and, and think like the pasta might be rolled too thick or there's not enough salt in something or they might overcook a veg. I mean, uh, there are things like that that happen, but then we talk about it and, um, you know, I yell at them a little bit just to make them feel like they're really in the game. And- <laughs> uh, I, I know that as a kitchen leader, you... Uh, found that yelling at people wasn't really effective. What a great thing to learn. Yeah, yeah. But that means that you had to come up with an alternate approach. What was your approach, not with the people in a camp in Tanzania who, understandably, they want just a little frisson, yeah. but uh, to motivate people in your own kitchen? Well, it's first of all um, making sure that you're with them that, um, throughout a day as opposed to zooming in you know, and at just before service and tearing them apart. Um, so tasting, 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 being present, and, and then explaining why you want something to be a particular kind of way. Um, if there's a conflict, taking them aside, speaking to them, you know, and asking them questions, trying to find out why there's a conflict or why they're making mistakes. Or I mean, it's not um, as... A friend of mine used to say rocket surgery, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just being a smart human. And if you read anything about leadership, and I learned this later, I mean, I figured this out along the way, but you have to first look to yourself and you have to be vulnerable. And if you're human and vulnerable and show respect, I think it works much better in the long run in creating the culture that I wanted than yelling. Now, there were people who couldn't work for me because I wasn't, I didn't yell at them. They didn't, they didn't feel like they were um, being asked to advance. They weren't being recognized um, because they weren't getting the kind of attention that they were used to getting, which was yelling and screaming. And so they're used to all that negative attention, which made them feel good somehow. Yes, made them feel like something was. Oh, oh, now I get it. Now I get. It. Instead of saying, "What do you think you need to do in order to progress?" Um, somebody yelling at them and saying that you're an idiot, calling them names, swearing at them, um, was a better, you know, gauge of how they were doing. What a strange way to motivate people. Yeah. Yes. Um, but it is, you know, it's not just something that happened in the past. It still happens. You know, there's still, and, and, you know, there are all of these young, well, not so young chefs anymore who are saying, you know, I recently learned that yelling at people is not an effective. All those years that I was yelling and I think, yeah. But what, took the, <laughs> what do you think took them so long? I mean, do you think they're that- allowed? I think they were allowed to do it. But it really makes you feel shitty. I mean, it just does not feel good to scream and yell at somebody. And then you have to not just recover from um, the yelling at the person, but then you have to recover from the way it makes you feel right? as well. But- as, so if you say, okay, this is really pissing me off. Hmm. 
how can I, you know, approach this so it's win-win for everybody? And I actually move the needle forward instead of having to come back to this again and again and again because I'm not really fixing it. I'm just getting mad. Yeah, getting, I think that notion of how it makes you feel, in addition to the fact that you made them feel crappy, that it makes yeah. you feel bad. I'm not sure that all those people who are doing the screaming, it made them feel so bad. I think it does. You too. I think we're all really human. And I think that, I mean, what I've been reading, and I won't name names about the chefs, but there are chefs who have sort of come forward and started talking about this. Um, and I think, you know, you asked how I learned to, to, to be that kind of a manager. And that actually was a big part of it, is when I, early on, when I would yell and scream or just, I hated the way it made me feel. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to go back and apologize and give people hugs and, you know, which is not, that, you can't do that either because then right. everybody gets all weird and squishy <laughs> and it's like, what is this? You then know, then it doesn't seem like you're in charge and you're yeah. Yeah, flip floppy. And you're, the you're worst throwing, kind of yeah, you're throwing your, you know, your needs onto them. And anyway, so I just try learn to avoid it as much as possible in the first place. <laughs> um, well, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about leadership, pushing yourself, setting goals, and the inspiration that is Jody Adams. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset Cast Iron Skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I have as my guest Jody Adams. I've known Jody for, boy, I feel like it's been decades. You were a food and wine best new chef in 1993, I want to say, yeah. uh, which is before I was at Food and Wine, but just by a, a couple of years. And I, I'm I'm curious. All of those awards that you've gotten, you've gotten so many awards over the years. And now I feel like awards programs are uh, under fire. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where the host and go host, uh, it's a show called Radical Sandwich. They were like, yeah, awards are like stupid and horrible. Well, how did you feel about um, the awards? Were they motivating? Were they... Um, do they have a positive impact on business and self-esteem? For sure, they were motivating um, for me. When the James Beard Awards were first um, established in, what year was that? Couldn't tell you. I can't tell you. Anyway, I think it was ni- like 92 or I, Anyway, I don't remember. I, re- I remember um, 
he, reading about Todd English we, w winning the Rising Star. And I, we did, I didn't know anything about the James Beard Awards, but I thought, I'm going to find out about this. What is this? This is something new. And so I uh, looked it up. And so I figured out how to get there. I paid for my own ticket. I went down to New York. I sat in the audience. And, of course, that was the year of the Can-Can. And do you know that? Story? No. Mm. Well, the, the there were two different receptions. There was the pre-reception and the post-reception. I think they, I don't know if they do that anymore. Um, the pre-reception was female chefs and the post-reception was male chefs and it was all French. And the men came out and they were full on in white. High toques all the way down to long white aprons, you know, like one big white <laughs> French chef presence. The women came out in can-can Oh. Outfits and were kicking, can 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 kicked, and you could hear the audience inhale. It was like, oh, whose idea was that? And that's where you know, women chefs and restaurateurs evolved in response. I had to no that. idea. I just had a full body shudder. Yeah. That is so appalling. It was I pretty appalling. Wow. Um, and, and needless to say, things changed yes. after that. But so I, I decided this is, you know, this is a world that I want to know about, and I want to know how you play in this world. And so, you know, I didn't set out to, like everything I did wasn't a, a based around getting an award, but it was, it was getting recognition. And at that time, there weren't, there was Food and Wine, which was awesome. Um, and there was the James Beard Awards, but there weren't, uh, you know, like one after another. And it really felt like the, that, that uh, it wasn't just a popularity contest, that people were able to really study these chefs and who they were. Now, it's changed. And, um, and as we know, it's going to change again with the Me Too movement, I think, you know, and recognizing that um, it's not just about whether you cook the food that somebody has decided is the sexiest food. It's actually, you know, it's a more of a holistic kind of um, evaluation of someone, which is awesome. I think, I mean, the award, the awards media is very complicated, and I think it's very, very hard to judge, and it, I think it's a very uneven playing field. Yeah. I think the whole thing is changing because, you know, um, newspaper... Restaurant critics are also in flux now because we have this, you know, sort of democratized evaluation system with Yelp and OpenTable and TripAdvisor and all of all of those things. Um, so it's it's uh, and what makes um, a restaurant desirable is not just about good food on the table and a nice environment. It's is it Instagrammable, you know? Is it Instagramable? Is it fun? I mean, is it an experience? Right, and I think we've gone so hard on the experience, and as you said, uh, really understanding everything about that chef's world. Are the people in the kitchen treated fairly? Um, is it a fair wage? It's what kind of food is it? It doesn't have to be just uh, European on a European model. When you talk about all those French chefs, I mean, that's just at the Beard Awards that speaks to such a moment in time. Yeah. But I remember the um, one of the times we met, I was at your restaurant, Rialto, and you were um, hosting a conversation about women 
um, in the food business, and I had always been of the mind that you know if you worked hard, as you worked hard, you figured out a plan and you got to where you wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, isn't that how it works? You work really hard, you put in the time, and you get where you want to go. And you're like, nah, it doesn't actually really work that way. And I want to say it was one of the first times that I felt like I was completely present for that conversation going, okay, I guess, um, I guess it's more than that. And Mm -hmm. memorable to this day, you said it's the women aren't even in the picture. Can you tell that's the story about, um, (coughs) not being included in the picture and what that meant to you? Yeah. Well, I, if I could go back a bit, there was an article that was, so this is about my, um, experience of learning about if you're not in the picture. And um, so when I was just started out as a chef, Nancy Harmon Jenkins was doing an article um, for the New York Times. She was in New York, New York working for the New York Times, but she was doing an article about Boston chefs. And she had interviewed all of us, and the article was written, and a photographer was sent around, and came to Michaela's, where I was the chef at the time. I was a brand new, like, raw, young woman chef. And uh, he, I cooked the food, he took the pictures, and then he started packing up his equipment. And I said, don't you want to take a picture of me? And he said, no, don't worry about it. I already have a woman. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, fire started burning inside of me and so I went to the phone that was actually plugged into a wall because that was <laughs> how we worked that in the, those days and called my friend Gordon Hammersley who was a chef in Boston at the time and my mentor and I said so Gordon this photographer whose name I still know um did he take a picture of you yes did he take a picture of Chris Lessinger yes how about Jasper yes and Todd English yes so he had taken pictures of all of the men, but he had. But one was enough. One woman was enough, and I folded my arms across my chest and stood up straight in a goofy chef's hat, and I said, "I think you want to take my picture," and that was the picture that was used as the front and top of the fold in the food section of the New York Times article, and it was because I believe because my. That power came through. Now, that's not to say that throughout my life I haven't been insecure and lost my confidence and not always stood up for myself and allowed myself to be literally pushed off a stage, um, but it sticks in my mind. And so what inspired that panel that you were so, so graciously came to was um, there was a picture in, I believe it was Food and Wine, of the, I think, an Aspen... Um, the Aspen Food Festival or something. Aspen and there, Food and Wine Classic in... Ma- yeah. and, sorry, the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen. Yes, and there were, I believe, 12 p- people, chefs. There were two women, and neither of the women were restaurant chefs. They were TV personalities. And all of the men were restaurant chefs. And my blood started to boil, and I saw that, and I thought, you know, if we aren't put in the picture then people don't see us and they can't be us. So the whole question of why aren't there more women, which is what the question always is about um, why aren't there more restaurant chefs, why aren't there um, more women doing whatever, 
we can't be it if we don't see it. And, you know, we, we know that. You know, my son says to me, and my daughter, but my son who's older says, you know, Mom, you're my role model. So I'm a role model to a 29-year-old young man. We can do that. You know, we can do that. Uh, anybody can. But women can certainly do that. And the way it's going to happen is if we're allowed to do it. And sometimes we have to beat the door down. It, you know, it, it's, we're not, if we're not invited and, and we don't know that it's going on, how can we be there? Yes. Um, I think that, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but it has to be a good five years ago. And I, I feel like this, if you can't you know, see it, you can't be it, has become such a resonating phrase and more and more important. And I feel like you're the one who first put it in my mind because you felt it so personally and so strongly. And now on this show, I meet all kinds of women who have not had someone um, who's a role model for them. They've never seen someone who's an African-American female baker succeed, Mm -hmm. or they haven't seen a female butcher who wants to do, you know, go into that profession. They haven't seen that person succeed, or they are stuck with that, well, we already have one. So I think it's a great opportunity at this moment to, you know, share as many voices as possible. You, you mentioned that, you know, there's ebbs and flows of security and insecurity. And I think that to your point of we're all human, I think the path from insecurity to security is such an important one. And I wonder if there's anything in your own experience that you want to share that helped you along that path, understanding that the path wiggles and <laughs> sometimes you're more secure than others. Boy, that's a big one, Dana. Okay. Um, I think it's, to some extent, listening to uh, the people who really matter in your life about the things that really matter. Because so often our insecurities are about our relationship to something superficial um, or something we haven't done before or in response to somebody's behavior that has really nothing to do with us. It has to do with them, you know, and we react to that. So it's, you know, finding those people and paying attention to those times where you can be connected to that. And, you know, for me, people ask me, you know, and I'm sure they ask you, and I'm sure it's a topic of conversation for you, particularly when it comes to women, because it's very, it's in keeping with this conversation. Um, Who are your mentors? Right. And so I've had many. Gordon definitely was one. I was very fortunate that Julia Child was one of mine. Lydia Shire was. But now in my life, it's my children to a great extent because they really know who I am. And they both the personal mother who I am to them and also the public um, Jody Adams chef, which is what they call me, Jody Adams the <laughs> chef, um, when they're talking about that other person. And they know how to bring the two together and what I should pay attention to. So, for instance, when I was asked to be on Top Chef Masters, I was in my early 50s. I was established as a chef, you know, at Rialto. I I poo-pooed competitive TV, you know, as many of us snotty people did. And um, 
I was invited to be on it, and I started asking people if I should do it, and I was sort of hemming and hawing, and no, of course I can't do it. That's not me. That's just you know below me. And um, finally, my kids said, "Mom, you've talked about this so much. If you don't do this, you're a wimp, and everybody <laughs> will know that you're a wimp because you." Even though I wasn't supposed to tell anybody I'd been invited, of course. Um, and it made it made me really look at you know what was keeping me from doing this. I was I was insecure, and I was taking myself way too seriously. And I needed to break the barrier of you know my own little box for myself about what made me a chef. Um, and as I was heading off to Los Angeles, uh, they said to me. Because I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to cook? You know, I, I said, cook what you know and be yourself. Wow. So, Kids are great. And, and <laughs> when I cooked what I didn't know, like I did that, uh, I, something with a goat that I shouldn't have done because I, you know, I'd never done it before. I was voted off the island. Okay. Stay away from goat. No, stick to what you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good lesson. Uh, something that I admire is how you have taken on cycling um, and partly because as I said at the beginning of the show uh, because I am a, a pretty hardcore non-athlete although I'm interested potentially in transitioning <laughs> um, so I always you, anytime you I, can do that I, right anytime in your life yep. so, I, so I, I need pointers I mean you you know you got on a bike you hadn't ridden far or long and then you end up completely committed to a race and your training begins early and it goes, I mean, I don't know how many months it is, but it's months. Yeah. How did that person emerge from within you? Like what, which Jody is that? It's probably not mom or chef. That's the, um, you know, I need, I can do this and I'm not going to be proven wrong. Um, yeah, I started cycling because I was invited to do a trip in Sicily and I learned that I actually didn't know how to really ride a bike. I didn't know how to go up a hill. I didn't know how to change gears. You know, my chain was always jumping off the <laughs> bike. I was falling. And, and I was determined that I was going to master this. Um, and then um, the Penmas Challenge rides through a town on Cape Cod where I've spent my summers forever. And if I get up early in the morning, I would see them go through. And every year I'd say, wow. I mean, you'd see, you see people of all shapes and sizes and ages. And I'd say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Well, my sister had um, breast cancer. And so I decided I was going to do it for her and raise money. And after I did the first year, maybe it was the second year. Anyway, um, she was determined to do it as well. So she rode four Pan Mass Challenges. So it is, and at the first year... You start training as soon as you can. And I tr started training in December for April. And I did every mile I was supposed to do. Um, it, it's a challenge, and it's hard. But it's an amazing feeling of accomplishment. And the other part of it is, Dana, that you're riding with 5,000 people. There are 3,000 volunteers who are out there by the side of the road cheering you and then the, the people cheering you on. So it's, I don't know, probably you pass through 20,000 people, you know, who are some, some way participating in this. And you really feel like you're doing something that's going to make a difference. And they're, 
you meet the kids who are um, in uh, being treated. You meet people who have survived, people holding up signs saying, thank you, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Um, what was it like riding with your sister was, for the four times you got to? Um, the, the emotion was just amazing. And more importantly, seeing her cross that finish line was spectacular. And, you know, she rode, she, was, she found out um, in May, or no, in April, I believe, that she had her, her cancer had metastasized. And she had already been training for months and she was told that she should not ride. And she said, I'm riding. And she um, rode that year, and then, as I said, for four years. And she became fitter and more healthy, I mean, and happy and strong. Um, also in that time, she was, um, she left her job as a banker. She started working directly with um, care and um, the patient advocate program at Sloan. She was here in Manhattan. Oh. So she was, her world became focused on um, finding a cure and saving other people. And, um, and it continues. Her husband, who didn't ride before that, now rides. And he's so funny. But I mean, he was, had never really ridden. And he decided um, the year after she died that he was... He was sure, she could, if she could do it, yeah. <laughs> he could really get on that yeah. bike and so, get going. So it, it's, it's contagious in ways that are just, you know, filter through and it goes back to the, oop, sorry, goes back to community and, you know, being a part of something that's mm -hmm. um, making a difference in the world. Where do you think that core sense of determination came from in you? Is that a, a childhood thing or... I think it's yeah, it's it's who I am. It's who I have always been. Um, I was. What's the earliest memory of being that determined? Well, I was referred to as being truculent when I was in <laughs> elementary school. Good word. At least it's a <laughs> yeah. five-point word. Yeah. <laughs> Although the teacher spelled it truculent. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you probably didn't correct them. No, I I have always been. My in high school, I was called the cop because I saw everything I and it wasn't I wasn't like the cop that I was you know trying to monitor everybody it was just if you did something I knew about it and saw it and um, I don't know I um, I think that you know work is uh, incredibly compelling for me and had I not found my husband and had children I probably would have become a workaholic um, so m my children saved me from that. Um, but there's something incredibly satisfying about barreling through. And the other thing is, is that I'm not an, um, I was not a super duper academic student. We both went to Brown, but that I was never going to be an academic. Yeah. I went, I went to Brown and delightfully took, you know, 90% of my classes pass fail. So. Yeah. <laughs> me too. But I, I was love doing things with my hands and I wasn't ever an athlete either um, I was never encouraged to be an athlete or never really that interested but um, I just love doing things with my hands so finding cooking initially was so satisfying and and as you know you have your mise en place you cook whatever it is 
if it's either at home or in a restaurant, the meal's over, it's done, and you start over the next day. And if it wasn't perfect, maybe it can be more perfect the next time. And you just keep going and going and going. So physical work is, um, is incredibly satisfying to me. I, I have to ask you for a Julia Child story. So um, I got to work with Julia just the littlest bit because she was a contributing editor to Food & Wine. And every time I spent time with her, I was incredibly intimidated, but also charmed. And I imagine you must have cooked for her mm-hmm. quite a yes. bit, right? Yes. Because at Michaela's and then Rialto, and she was in Boston, terrifying driver, the most terrifying driver I've ever been in a car with. But um, like, what is your, do you have a favorite Julia Child story? Well, I'll tell you a favorite story that the listeners are going to, that's great. will want to hear. And that is that, yes, I, um, when I opened Rialto, I wanted it to be a rustic restaurant. I mean, all we knew was white tablecloth fine dining at the time. And there was a movement with Hammersley's Bistro and restaurants like that to um, make things a little more casual. So I thought I would do braised meats. And well, it was white tablecloth restaurant in a hotel. And it wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be. Um, and that was ultimately that was fine. But it was that's an example of actually you know, chefs and restaurateurs often have ideas of what a restaurant will be, but it's the customers who tell you what it will become. Um, anyway, I got a phone call from Julia after she had been in for dinner when I didn't happen to be there. And she said, Jody, you can't serve that steak. You have to serve prime beef. So I'd been serving a nice choice sirloin. And she told me that it was unacceptable and that I had to change the quality of the meat. So... <laughs> Uh, of course, I did what you told me to do. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure that, that worked for you, your guests. Yeah, but that was a, the wonderful thing about her is that she was just incredibly straightforward. And it was all about, you know, keep. I remember one expression I heard her say, keep your eye on the prize. Like what's most important is ultimately the prize. And yeah, there's going to be hurt feelings and mistakes along the way, but keep your eye on that. Um, and that's... That's a notion that serves one well, because it's really easy to get caught up in the minutia of things. So you, you mentioned before that people always ask you who your mentors are, and um, indeed, I've, I've fielded that question myself more than once. So the, this question is a variation on the theme, mm-hmm. uh, because at the end of the show, I always ask my guests to pay it forward. So if there's someone in the world of food who you admire, who um, has inspired you. So they don't have to be a mentor, but someone who you'd like to pay it forward to. Who would that be? Well, um, I have to say at this point, I I would say Joanne Chang. Love Joanne Chang. In Boston. I mean, there's so many people and so many women um, Swen so Chang has um, Flower Bakery, Bakery, and she also has Myers and Chang, Chang, one of my favorite restaurants. And she worked for me as a pastry chef at Rialto early on, and I admired her from the get-go. And I've just, it's just been so amazing to watch her grow and develop, and the contribution that she's made, her dignity and grace, and, um, and she's, you know... It, just incredibly gracious in her celebrity. And, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of admiration. And she's a really good businesswoman. You know, she's really smart. Um, she makes really smart decisions. 
very well, careful. What's your favorite um, Joanne Chang recipe? I mean, you know, just that you've had. Oh, you, sticky buns. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was so easy. I thought that was going to be the ham and the haw, but no. Um, well, with that, with sticky buns, also um, an absolute favorite of mine. Although my favorite um, flour bakery story is that I went and I bought uh, raw pizza dough. Mm-hmm. And I brought it on the train home with me and it just grew and grew and grew and became like it looked like this gigantic heirloom tomato it was just trying to push itself out of its plastic wrap and then I got it punch it down yeah well that was it I got it home and I punched it but I think I just did not have enough anger or punch in me and it was just like it just never quite became the right shape and I'm I just am talking that up to overproofing it but in any case so if people want to find you Jody where um how can they follow you on social or um, give a shout out for the restaurants. The restaurants, well, there's Porto, um, Porto-Boston, or Porto, Porto Boston, uh, Trade Boston, and Saloniki Greek are the restaurants. Um, I am not the best social media person in the world, but you can find me, Jody Adams, um, in, on Instagram or on Facebook, but uh, you won't see a whole lot. You're better off going to the restaurants. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and the... Um, Come see us. Come let me know that you, when you come in, if you if you come in and um, yeah, go say hi. Jody's yeah, awesome. Clearly, you can tell from this this show. Um, I'm fascinated that you've sort of skipped the Instagram. I tried. I just um, I don't take really good pictures. My husband's a photographer. He takes very good pictures. So when we're together, then you know I can post his pictures. Um, I'm just really interested in what's going on, you know, on the plate and um, and the people. So yeah, you're going to just keep moving forward for human connections. Yeah, I think that that's the best route for me. It's served me well for yeah. all these years, and I think I'll just continue. Doing that. <laughs> that's it. You know where to find me uh, at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. Feel free to send comments, questions, and if you like the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes. Um, Apple Podcast and looking forward to having you back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.